From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 719, How Black Hats Profit, with guest Paula Yanishevitz, recorded Monday, July 20th, 2020. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. My guest today is a regular. It's Apollo Yanisiewicz. I think I got that right the first time today. Is that right? I think it's great. I think it's perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think it's pretty close. It's only been like 12 years, Paul. I mean, you should eventually learn how to pronounce your name. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very complex. And uh, every time like I go abroad, it's this. It's very Polish. Well, and the Anglican spelling is not uh, phonetic. Let's say it that way, right? I mean, that's always a challenge with, with, with Polish words. Right, right. So the uh, J A, it's not Ja, but it's Ya, and yeah, a couple yeah. of more vowels over there. Yeah. How are you? Well, it's all good. It's very interesting time we live in right now because mm-hmm. of the COVID situation, especially well, from cybersecurity perspective. But besides that, all good. Thank you. And you? I'm doing all right, and certainly making lots of shows. I've been doing a separate series specifically on pandemic topics, although I didn't want to focus on that with you today. But it's always good to just check in. I mean, we've been mm-hmm. friends a long time as well. The um, but I got to think, yes, the we been talking about the impacts in cybersecurity around the pandemic but and it's like it's not like there's more bad guys it's that they're just targeting the fears around the pandemic i don't know if you've seen the same sort of thing yeah absolutely uh and a funny funny fact as well is that um there is actually a global risks report that has been released mm-hmm. and uh, this one says that the second um biggest threat right now in the world it's actually after of course Things like flooding and and different nature related problems. It is actually cybersecurity. Wow! So cybersecurity is getting outside of the tech field of of a of the of a major risk into just the regular world now recognizes that cybersecurity is a huge risk. Yes, it is a huge risk, and there were also in general cyber attacks um, given as an example, mm-hmm. and also uh, data. Or in general, fraud. Right. So theft via deception, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so again, it's not, this is no longer an edge case. This is a normal thinking about your digital security, not just from a business perspective, but a personal perspective, because it's becoming a dominant force in the world when it comes to bad guys anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's what we also noticed, even though, uh, we've got an interesting time right now. Cybersecurity definitely uh, was like a number one subject for us too, because um, economically or business-wise, uh, we can totally see the increase in different types of cybersecurity services that we deliver to our customers. Yeah, I, I bet. And, and well, when we're recording this, uh, our friend Troy Hunt is loading a 11 billion record breach. That's really cool. (laughs) 
That is absolutely cool. Well, I'm, I, I, I said th- this to my wife and, I, and she's like, are there 11 billion email addresses? Because there's only 7 billion people. And I'm like, yeah, this might be all of them and their passwords. <laughs> so, so uh, especially with the passwords, yes, because that's another interesting subject over here. I thought that in 2020, uh, well, I thought, I hoped that people won't be actually storing passwords in that reversible way. Yeah. Not to mention the clear text in databases, right? Yeah. I, I mean, you would hope, but I, I don't think it's the case. I, I suspect this this 11 billion, whatever it is, and I'm sure I'll, I'll find a link to have I've been pwned about it, is an aggregate, is somebody scraping together all the lists and, and consolidating them uh, to show the, you know, this huge level, you know, of numbers. It's crazy. And I appreciate that, that, that have I been pwned now provides a service for us where you can easily check passwords off against their system to say, Hey, this password's already been exploited. Like you really shouldn't use it. Mm, absolutely. That's, that's one thing. But the second thing also that comes over here is the case of a password reuse. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we could be thinking, okay, that's bad and we could feel threatened by this and so on. But on the other hand, if we use different passwords for various services, it's not really our fault that from the user perspective, of course, that certain service has been hacked. That means someone did not do a good job over there, um, apparently. But on the other hand, even though our password leaks, that should not be a problem for us, right? So yeah. there should be only a problem with that service. But any other services that we use passwords for, do they have just simply different passwords? Well, and my, my sense is that there's a non-trivial number of people on that listen to this show that are in IT that are using password managers and do have different passwords everywhere, but the people that they support are not using them. Right, right. So that's the classic situation, right? Yeah. Uh, and not really long time ago, one of my colleagues' um, situation was that her Facebook account has been accessed. We, we tend to say hacked in general, but I really don't like to even say that because it's not that Facebook has a problem. She had a problem because her password was simple. Right. Or eventually she did something that uh, managed to uh, eventually extract password that she was it. possibly storing somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's not a Facebook problem. It was a reused password somewhere. Somebody got a list. They were running down that email password combination and uh, opened her account. And, and I love that you don't want to use the word hack because it was that complicated. It was a little piece of software that was running down a list of emails and password combinations, trying Facebook logins, and one of them worked. And that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So their their yeah, login absolutely. was not all that much different than her logging into her account. And and she was apparently a new target. And then someone was actually uh, using her mailbox to send emails to people that she was like corresponding with. And um, another another thing was that um, under her name. This person was sending requests to uh, borrow, um, let's say, five hundred dollars. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's like asking friends to borrow five hundred bucks. Nice one. All right, nice one, right? Yeah. And and she she told me that like her colleague uh, actually approached her and asked her about it, and and she she was like. Yeah, I would do this for you, no problem, but give me a little bit of time or something like that. And she was like, like, you do what for me? Because (laughs) she didn't really realize that that was actually happening behind her back. Yeah, wild. And such a great (laughs) social engineering, you know, and there's all the variations on that. Hey, I'm I'm in a faraway land and I've 
that my I've been robbed and can you send me a thousand dollars like that kind of stuff the sort of thing I would do for a friend too but of course nobody's traveling right now so that's that's not a good you know uh, a, a good scam but yeah but you know that could be a good excuse too right mm-hmm. because it could be more of a I'm in a like difficult situation because I lost my job because of pandemic right and here we go <laughs> yep now we're back to that social engineering side of things as well yeah very right. very mm-hmm. very straightforward simple person-to-person hacking are there, are there tools that make it easier like i can't imagine that this is this is being done at scale by hand that this is just an individual who who figures each one of these things out like they're they're using software for it right it's it's not that complex mm-hmm. i'm thinking of the metasploits of the world yeah absolutely so so you've got uh automated automation tools that can help you out mm-hmm. to to do that uh, especially to do the password spraying for these kinds of accounts and then when you've got a successful login you've got a prompt you've got a statement somewhere it depends on a tool and then maybe the rest could be like done manually it depends really on the on the who is actually doing this right but uh, ev- eventually um even though like it's automated or, or not uh it's equally dangerous uh you just earn less money from the hacker perspective right because it takes more effort right <laughs> but in the and in the end you know for the most part this is hacking that is got that is trying to be profitable like these are these this is not the old days where we built worms as experiments and they got out of control and oops sorry no payload <laughs> um this is people trying to live off of convincing people to give them money by impersonating others yeah, and unfortunately, it works. Yeah. Um, and if we take statistics into considerations, there were like some stats that were uh, confirming that um, the person with a successful ransomware campaign can earn like approximately uh, $990,000 per month. Wow. That's a pretty good salary for... That's a that's a lot. It's writing a piece of code. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. Well, and... And a lot of this code is off the shelf too. Like it already exists. You just have to put it together and create a decent campaign. And, you know, you'd think if they were that disciplined that they would be a white hat, not a black hat. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, so that's quite an interesting um, approach too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on the other hand, these things are usually underneath very simple. So it's just like one idea that you drop in and it works. And if it works for, let's say, 100 people, you've got already a really nice boost of cash uh when when it uh takes to uh, earning money illegally right it is a crime you're committing here and depending on where you're committing it you can be arrested for it so you know you might want to call it the business of hacking but it's not really a business it's still just criminal activity and and, it's, and you you can get charged and that can significantly change your life mm, absolutely but it's usually quite hard to find so in general, in our team, we, we do participate in such cases hmm. um, to, to try to trace back whether it's possible or not, or figure out at least the logic that stands behind so that you can design a good protection method. Right. But uh, on the top of that, uh, not every case obviously can be solved. Some of the cases, they actually manage to get to some point to court. And we've been participating actually uh, this has been a couple of years ago in a very interesting case where the guy was actually captured and our job was to objectively analyze, how else but saying, uh, the evidence that was gathered by FBI. 
And mm. that has been a very interesting case. So you, you're acting as the expert and, and mm, yes. providing subject matter. Absolutely. And, uh, and that was quite interesting because we were also comparing our results, our research with that research that uh, at the time FBI did. And there were a couple of differences. And eventually uh, what happened is that this guy uh, was um, imprisoned to the time of the a case in a court. Yeah. So this was like a pre pre prison right. kind of thing. And, uh, and after the case, uh, he actually went free. So he was not guilty. Mm-hmm. He was not guilty. So the, because it was, um, based on the evidence that was there, hard to connect the dots that could actually lead to conclusion that this guy did that. Oh, interesting. So it, it, there was evidence of a crime but not sufficient evidence to prove that this person had committed that crime. Mm-hmm. There were some things that could indicate it, but there was like no connection, like right. you said. And uh, taking into consideration the, the time that this guy was already imprisoned, that was enough to say that, okay, for what we've got, that's totally enough. Now it's, it's, you don't need to be in prison anymore. All right. So he may not, he may have still been convicted, but it was like, okay, lesser charge, time served, you're done. Yeah, for some of the things, for some of the things, actually. But eventually, he was supposed to spend 70 years in prison, Hmm. seven zero. So that's quite a lot because there was lots of different charges. But for some of the charges, the most important ones, he was actually not charged. So eventually, he went free. And for minor, minor things, he was charged. Right. And yeah, it's interesting that making state's case is not easy. It's and, And ultimately... That's not a bad thing that we actually have a legal system where you have to create, you have to show incontrovertible evidence, especially when you talk about these huge charges. It does seem disproportionate. You know, what's the appropriate amount of time based on Mm -hmm. what really comes down to, I presume, a theft that he did steal from someone, a certain amount of money or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. There is this. There seems to be this practice of creating these extreme charges with these extreme uh, uh, sentencing rules as deterrent so that you you will think twice about doing it. Oh, I could go to jail for 20 years for running this hack. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that works, and I'm certainly no specialist in in criminality, that, that those things actually serve as deterrents. I'm not asking for lesser charges or lesser cases and so forth, but it is, it does seem like the courts still don't know how to grapple with the actual convictions around cybercrime. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. Uh, so they don't. And, and th- this was actually the first click fraud case hmm. that was happening at the time in the United States and the first click fraud in general in the law. And that was the first case as well when hacker for such went free. So, um, very interesting. And there's like a, there's like a script, um, that uh, everybody can read really. Uh, the guy's name was, uh, Fabio Gasparini. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was a very famous, uh, case in the court for the state of New York. Interesting. And, and it's interesting. Yeah. So was they decided the crime had been committed in the U.S.? Um, so the, the, in general, so he was, he was charged for like lots of things, uh, eventually. Uh, but because that was a new case in court, nobody kind of like, 
I don't want to say that, that that directly, but there was a problem of dealing with it, you know, because it wasn't really defined in law. Right. So everybody was trying to interpret it um, to, to what to do with it. And eventually our analysis was kind of crucial here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the document that I was reading, for example, uh, that was written by different government units at the time because there was a certain evidence that has been gathered, already analyzed, and so on. So that that kind of report wasn't just complete. And that actually raised lots of questions at the time because one of those questions was, like, do we really, like, have everything that was in general, like, used in this crime, let's say? Right. Do we have all of the evidence? What was the way that that evidence was gathered? Was it a good way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. you know what I mean, right? Well, yeah. So it, it could... In, in, it could be a problem, <laughs> without a doubt. Yeah, in any in in law enforcement, they talk about this uh, chain of evidence that you have to be very, you know, if you find the bloody knife on the ground at a crime scene, it's photographed in situ. It is you're careful not to contaminate it, and you control the handling of that evidence so you can get to the trial very, very carefully. And I think that mm-hmm. we don't think that way in technology about the cleanliness and that there's no chance of being tampered or contaminated any step of the way. That's almost a foreign concept to us in technology. Very hard to, to prove that. And, and so you could easily disqualify evidence in the process just because you can decide that somebody may have edited that log file. How would we know? Absolutely. Like you said, like when you find a knife, you don't grab it with your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is, so you secure it in a certain way and and the same story with technology yes. like when you collect the evidence it should be also secured we've got to possibly luckily to do the backup and the analysis in general should be happening um by using different teams so that we've got a certain perspective on it right. and so on depends of course on the case and it's important so to say but um eventually that that should be the process and we can really find that practice applied in that case. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a trap. And Paula, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Your users are working remotely, and the bad guys know it. New phishing attacks are already landing in the inboxes of your users. Are those machines as protected as they would be if they were on-prem? If their machine catches ransomware, how fast can you get it fixed? Don't be the IT admin who could have done something but didn't. Block the badness and prevent business continuity problems at the source by using Policy Pack on your remote work Windows 10 machines. With Policy Pack, you get the power to manage applications and browsers on Windows 10, overcome application UAC prompts, block unknownware, dynamically configure the Windows 10 start screen, taskbar, and file associations. As a bonus, you can use Policy Pack to deliver any real on prem group policy and group policy preferences settings to your remote work machines for the security and configuration they need. Learn how thousands of other admins enhance their remote work scenarios. Come to policypack.com slash remote work to learn more. That's policypack.com slash remote work. Policypack, securing your standards. And listeners to this podcast are eligible to win a free copy of the Cybex Wiley book entitled MDM, Fundamental Security in the Modern Desktop, using Intune, Autopilot, and Azure to manage, deploy, and secure Windows 10 by Jeremy Moskowitz, Enterprise Mobility MVP. Simply pick Run As Radio in the dropdown when you visit policypack.com slash remote work. Good luck, and we hope you win. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell. This is Run As Radio, talking to my friend Paula. We're talking about, I guess, the business of hacking. 
And for us on the good guy side, how do I make this business not pay? Like what's the, in the end, this makes most sense. Like I always, I love the club analogy. I don't know that I even have the club in, it's in, in Poland, the little bar you put across your steering wheel just to make it harder to steal your car, right? I mean, it's, it's that scenario of anybody really, really wants your car can get your car. They could cut the steering wheel apart. They can smash the club. But if you want a car, it's like, Hey, that one's got a club. I'm not going to bother with that car. I'll take the other car that doesn't have a club. And to me, it seems like a lot of securities like that. Let me just raise the bar enough that I'm not the easy target. I'm the hard target, so you don't bother. You're, you're not going to make money off of me. This, this is, of course, the approach that we see every day. But on the other hand, the, I would say that that's the kind of effectively everybody's approach. Right. Because it's really a matter of like skill set and the budget mm-hmm. combined well and out of that, we've got a really nice infrastructure security that comes out. But, um, of course, we, when we like take these two variables and we work on them, uh, that can end up differently in the various companies. So we can have companies that spend lots of money on their security systems, but eventually you get in and then you just basically, uh, manage to, to get access to that particular infrastructure within the first day right and i'm thinking about one particular customer that we have over here and they had like three anti-spam filters and uh and a couple of other things inside and isolation of the separate vlans and so on so okay great but the implementation wasn't the greatest right and there was nobody to verify on that um and on the other hand you can have customer that is not very rich um, but on the other hand they're very creative so you can see different implementations of variants of, of even building Windows solutions that are allowing us, for example, to uh, stop processes that we don't know to communicate out from Windows operating system. Right. See, for example, a Windows firewall, which some people might be even laughing at and so on, because it was very simple in the past. Right now, it did not change. And we've got a possibility to configure certain rules uh, for ports or just say allow everything to go out and block whatever to go in and so on. So, so that, that's the simple use of it. But on the other hand, on the other hand, in Windows, you have a possibility to create rules that are per processes. And you can say that that process is allowed to communicate by all means or only on that port and so on. To simplify it, we could say by all means. And we've got lists of processes that are usually communicating over the network. Uh, and we only allow those. And anything else, it's not. So potentially, if we got ransomware, ransomware in the form of a process mm-hmm. won't be able to communicate out because right. it's blocked. And who stopped this? Simple Windows, uh, Windows firewall. Yes, I, but it, this mean what I like about this is this is not a technology solution per se. This is you understanding as the person o- operating infrastructure for this organization, how your organization communicates. So you can put this very broad restriction in place. I know exactly what programs are allowed to communicate out of my network. Anything that isn't one of those programs doesn't get to do that. And ta-da, ransomware can't, commu- can't communicate outward. Absolutely. That, that's like, I would say, the simplest, the, the, the easy to, to reach and mm-hmm. easy to accomplish uh, approach uh, against ransomware and sometimes we can complain that oh i don't have security budget and this and that well that should rise creativity 
And uh, the customer that actually did that, because I'm thinking about the different customer, is actually a bank. And they, hmm. it's like a it's like a national bank. Right. So it's not really a commercial bank. So they have a decreased security budget. So they had to figure out what to do. And they figured this. And uh, when I saw it, I was like, that's a very nice approach. Very, yeah, effective. And again, you now, now you trade this against your time for when other software is introduced that is legitimate and can't communicate. But should be able to raise, you know, raise a flag to you to say this app's not able to communicate. Now you can choose: Do I create a rule for the firewall? But if you're containing, if you've got a good me- control over what software is working on your network and how they're communicating, there's a large class. I mean, all every kind of Trojan, like there's a whole bunch of malware that's broken if it can't communicate outward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, like. I would love to see good developed a good development of of malware. Uh, we're always laughing at that in our team. Um, well, 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 concept is great, yes. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, when you look at the uh, techniques, practices, and so on, you're like, that's not what we had at school. <laughs> right, but uh, it's all you know, just thinking more creatively in general. Because there there are also network devices and things that are more sophisticated around this. They're just expensive, and it takes time to learn how to use them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, if you cannot afford them, then that could be one of the ways, of yeah. course, to do. And and there's a huge portion of simplification that you mentioned that when you when you decide to invest in software, in cybersecurity field, whatever the field that will be inside cybersecurity, then it's really about simplification, monitoring, e- easier access to information that you are informed in a certain way that you like, and you've got a possibility to customize it while when you use the building windows features there's lots of things that are fantastic right now in comparison to what we had in the past but still like not always you you may like have what you really want uh, in, in terms of being informed yeah absolutely and there's always you know the the trade of software versus time here both are valuable you know you're you're paid a salary how much of your time can be put towards solving these security problems and, you know, mm-hmm. do the ROI on that? Does it make sense to pay for a contractor or a consultant to help you or to buy certain products that will facilitate that so that you're spending less time? Although there's never no time. Anytime you introduce anything new, you have to help supervise the consultant. You have to learn the piece of software. Nothing's free here, It's but it, there's a budget in terms of, you know, long term. Your firewall solution, if you do have software regularity induced to your network means a constant overhead in uh, providing you ports and communicating with your staff. That that's a cost. Does that make sense then? You know, how do you weigh that off? Mm, absolutely. And there's lots of things that are building in the platform right now. For example, mm-hmm. within Windows 10, we've got something that I've been waiting for for the past, I don't know, at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that's Exploit Guard. So in general, the possibility or lack of possibility right now to use different exploitation techniques over the platform. And that's so good because lots of people were complaining that, oh, firewall doesn't help me, antivirus doesn't help me. Of course, because antivirus focuses on two major, there is more, but two major ways of discovery. Yeah? So one's going to be the signature right. and another one's going to be the behavior. And the third one that is kind of like crawling a little bit, that's the machine learning or in general, the intelligent threat detection. But before we implement that, there's going to be still lots of time um, that just passes. So people mostly rely on the first two. So how if we've got a vulnerability, let's say, in the browser, 
or in any other software. How can we discover that? With what? With, with, we, we, we don't have these tools. And in Windows right now, we've got a export guard that allows you to actually block that typical exploitation techniques that were used when there's a vulnerability in software. So what does the exploit guard look like when it's in action? Well, it's, it's, there aren't that many things that you can configure, uh, from the, like, first view perspective. Mm -hmm. And, but you've got a, in general, possibility to decide which or what kind of applications can be sandboxed. And when you're trying to manipulate or access in general that particular process in a certain way to do something around it, to have certain function to do something around that process, for example, things like heap spray and so on, um, then eventually uh, that behavior is recognized mm -hmm. and that behavior is blocked. So it's a set of hundreds of known behaviors right. that are predefined in Export Guard that whenever there's a vulnerability in software, these vulnerabilities can be exploited usually this way, and these ways are already known. So that's why they're blocked. Interesting. So there's not much for me to do as an IT person. If I have Windows Defender running on these Win10 machines, it's Microsoft that's keeping that set of uh, policies up to date and will essentially work automatically? Yeah, pretty much. And th the nice thing about that is that right now it's, just building in a platform. So uh, security of someone who is not really tech savvy, it's still maintained. Right. And that's what I really like about that approach. Of course, we could uh, extend it by different monitoring options like um, Defender ATP, for mm -hmm. example, where you've got full monitoring of what's happening within the process and so on, that the process is communicating over the network and so on, but not everybody even wants to know that. So from the end user perspective, Having that as a part of platform security, it's a really nice gain over here. Yeah, no, no question. And, and, you know, I'm thinking back to your story of your friend on Facebook, uh, because Facebook normally when it sees a login from somewhere else, will, will send you a message. You know, even if you haven't set up multi-factor authentication, it's like, Hey, that's an unusual login. Was this you? Uh, and, that by itself is a really interesting phenomenon. Like we, you and I used to travel enough that you often triggered those things. They would ask for additional credentials or even mm -hmm. lock out, reauthenticate, please. Like there was, uh, we're seeing more of this kind of exploit guard mindset that we're the, the products we use are building up a knowledge of our normal usage behavior. And when our usage behavior changes, they lock down a little. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's what also uh, wonders. Like, it makes me wonder, really, uh, like, why and how did it actually happen? So, I didn't really ask that many questions because right. uh, when, when you hear kind of like the stories like this, th that's exactly that was exactly my fault. Like, what about this? What about that? What about this? So, I bet that like if you have to confirm within the email that this is you actually logging on. She, she might have done it. Yeah, just said, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's me, yeah. I, I've learned to just say okay to everything that pops up, right? So, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I, and I think I actually might come uh, out of this. And if I ask these questions, she would just feel more awkward, feel, yeah. feel more awkward that she did, did, just did, uh, I don't know, a very bad job. So, uh, so, I didn't want to put her in this situation. So, that's a different story. Well, 
Yeah, and it's tough to have it's it's tough to have a friend who's a security professional because you know you're always like oh, I messed up in your profession again. I try to be a better friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I'm, ha- I'm always happy to help, uh, absolutely. But uh, sometimes I prefer not to ask questions if it, if they're not critical for me to solve something. Right. Because you know, it's like it's like if if I was asking these questions to my grandma, she would be like, "Oh, just I I don't need you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need your help. I, d- I don't want this help." Well, you also have you know, they're a friend. Are they asking you for help or they just want to pat on the shoulder? I feel your pain. You know, it's going to be okay. You'll figure this out. Like sometimes people don't actually want the help, right? They're just asking for a little support. Right, 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 right. So I think it's both eventually. Right. But it's, yeah, it's got to be tough when you're in the business and your friends are like, and you're like, oh, no. I mean, I am not in the business. I get to hang around with cool people like you, but I am certainly an advocate for password managers and MFA and enjoying my <laughs> UB keys and just trying to be a good example. You know, I do have friends now who are technically savvy, but not professional technology folks who are like, you really are happy with those UB keys. I'm thinking I should get some. And we talk it for a while. And, I, you know, rule number one, you never own one UB key, at least two. And, and and sort of working through those things. And they're starting to do it. Then maybe I'm making a positive impact here. Right. But on the, on the other hand, it's just, it's just becoming more difficult. Yes. And people don't know how to start. That's why they don't even start. Yeah. Uh, and th- that's where it actually uh, takes us to that they've got these situations like my friend on Facebook. And so it's great. It's great that we can sort of help lead folks down the path here. But this is how we make this business of hacking go away is that we get better and it just gets more expensive for them. And they in the end, it's not profitable. That's true. I hope so. I hope that's true. <laughs> well, Paula, I what's I would say what's next for you? Where are we going to see you? But I suspect you're staying home just like the rest of us. Yes, I'm, I'm staying home right now, and uh, it's it's great. Uh, so finally, uh, after so many years of travel, um, that's basically what our team does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but everybody else, it's staying at home. So uh, it also raises a couple of more questions that are related with remote work and cybersecurity. Um, and that's another interesting subject here. <laughs> yeah, no question. And of course, secure is bigger and busier than ever, right? Because it's not like cybersecurity is going away. It's only getting larger. Yes, that, that's uh, true. And a uh, nice fact about us is that we have actually um, encountered during the uh, pandemic uh, time really huge growth in projects. And we did not really expect that. Uh, we have to uh, hire one person. Um, so uh, basically, uh, we are still open for uh, new employees uh, because uh, cybersecurity, as you mentioned, it's a very, very booming subject. Cool question. Paula, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Great to talk to you again. I'm glad you're well. Awesome. Thanks so much. And uh, always great to hear from you. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio. <laughs> <laughs>